Hello readers, Oliver Stone is a multiple Oscar winning director and screenwriter. He's also the author of the new book, Chasing the Light, Writing, Directing, and Surviving Platoon, Midnight Express, Scarface, Salvador, and the Movie Game. Oliver, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Fine. How are you, Trey? Doing very well. Thank you again for the time. So, Oliver, much of the publicity of this book, understandably, is about your time making some classic films, but this is a memoir. You discuss the other facets of your first 40 years on this planet, like fighting in Vietnam, your childhood and adolescence, and you describe your complicated relationships with your mother and especially your father throughout these pages. Who was Evil Simon, and how is he reflective of who your dad was as a parent and a man? Well, it's certainly the my mom and dad were both powerful figures, equally, sometimes in a relationship, one's dominant or not. That's not the case. They both were strong people, but they were not suited for each other, and it led to a great kind of division in my character in terms of not only being French and American, but beyond that, it was a misfit in conception of their marriage. Their marriage was a romance, World War II romance, and a beautiful story, but frankly, like Gone with the Wind a bit, you know, she doesn't work out with Red Butler, if you remember the movie correctly. <laughs> That's right. It sort of was that. She was very much a fantasist, but it didn't work out. There was a lot of betrayal on both sides. It's quite a story. Evil Simon was a character, my father, who was a complicated man, very intense, very smart, created in my childhood. He was the main villain in the nighttime stories he would tell me. Often, his concept was he would change shape. He had that ability to become something else. And generally speaking, the scenario would be he would kidnap me in the story or and then hold me for ransom, or and I'd have to, be, or I'd escape, or I'd be saved in some way. But he was always there as a presence, and I kind of think my father had that sense of drama. Of, although he was a stockbroker, it's not that simple. He was a writer and an economist as well, and was very respected in his time. Speaking of writing, your passion for telling stories began by putting pen to paper. Why is Guadalajara, Mexico, an important place in your development as a writer, and how did it lead to you fighting in Vietnam? Guadalajara was a place I stopped later in my life. It's a place where I started to write outside school. I'd been writing as a young boy. My father gave me 25 cents for a theme way back in the 50s. He wanted me to just express myself on paper. I did it for the money, not because I liked the writing, but after going to Vietnam as a teacher and doing two terms there and then being in the Merchant Marine and traveling all over Asia, I came back to the U.S. and at the age of 19, settled in Guadalajara because, I don't know, I just liked the place. and There was a hotel and I stayed. And over those three weeks, I wrote the first 500 pages by hand of a novel which became to haunt me and grew into a much longer novel written in that year and the next year. And it led to my leaving Yale University a second time. I quit because I wanted to finish the novel, which became an obsession and almost got published, but was eventually published in 1997. It's called A Child's Night Dream, and that's very much what it was, a fevered dream of a 19-year-old boy seen it through his eyes. That's interesting. I mean, we adolescents, you know, sometimes like in Catcher of the Rye, tell us things that we don't normally hear when we get older and forget what it was like to be 19. Yeah, and oftentimes it seems like you're just really seeking out that which you have not already experienced through the first 17, 18, 19 years of your life. 
Yes, that includes being a person, you see. No doubt. In those days, at least, my life was institutional life. It was school, Sunday school, uh, dancing class, and then boarding school, boarding school. And then I was in the Army. It's hard to know what your independent existence really is. And a lot of people just shuffle through and do what their parents say or what the society tells them to do in their jobs and their lives. Regarding your time as a soldier in Vietnam, your war trauma included a really intense battle that you do a great job of describing on New Year's Day 1968 along the Cambodian border. The chaos was brought to a halt when a 500-pound bomb was dropped on the area. What is it like being in the immediate vicinity of something so powerfully destructive, and what did the aftermath look like? Well, it's well described. It really didn't stop at the 500-pound bomb because that was dropped sometime in the early morning hours. We were, in, it seemed, in a continuous firefight situation from about as soon as the evening came down all the way till dawn. During the course of that evening, I had been blown off my feet and concussed, I believe concussed by a beehive round. So I was lucky I wasn't wounded that night, but I certainly was felt like I was in a daze. The irony of that whole battle that was the biggest one I was in, was I never fired a shot or I saw an enemy. But it was a human wave attack coming, and I was sort of protected in the mist, I suppose. I was comparing it to the Olympian gods. They come down from the mythic place, and they envelop you in a mist, and they save you from harm. That's The goddess does that, if you remember the Iliad. There were 500 bodies that I saw, or 400 dead bodies of the enemy, and our own were about 150 wounded approximately 25 dead. It was quite a battle, and it was important because it happened right before Tet, three weeks before, and nobody was paying attention, really. It was not even hardly mentioned. But it was a significant moment, and many people have confirmed that battle to me since then, but I didn't even feel like it counted. And Anyway, I went on another year of combat there, and I saw a lot of action, for real. But this one was a dream. I felt like it was a dream. And that's the point. You don't remember these things. When you go back as an older man and you think it through, experience it again, and reappreciate it, it has a different feel, a weight. It has weight to it. It's more mythic. And that became the basis of Platoon, you see, the creation of the mythic being what's going on behind the ordinary. And going back into the Vietnam War, I remember these two characters, two sergeants I had in different platoons, Barnes and Elias, and... I brought them to life in the script as antagonists in the same platoon. Uh, What a story, huh? Oh, it's a crazy story. And I didn't realize this until reading it and chasing the light, but one, you wrote the script for Platoon, the first draft, in the 1960s, and there was this search for three characters from your experience in Nam that bore similarities to Achilles, Hector, and Odysseus. Why does Odysseus resonate with the journey that you and eventually your Chris Taylor character went through? Uh-huh. Because, well, first of all, when I came back from Vietnam, I wrote an allegory called Break in 69, but there were no three characters. Later, in 76, which was about eight years later, I wrote my first version of Platoon with these three characters, and I was in the middle. I was the uh, Odysseus figure. I took a course at NYU in Greek mythology, and that was the best thing I ever did, I think, there at film school. And the teacher would talk about consciousness as being Odysseus' secret, that Odysseus had more consciousness in him, was more awake than his 
crewmates, his teammates, and the other heroes of the Iliad who came home to sometimes difficult fates, destiny. Odysseus had more perception. And he talked about this famous scene with the sirens when he wants to listen to the sirens. He tells the crew to time to the mast and keep them there. No matter what, he screams for release. But he wanted to hear what the siren song was, whereas he told his crewmates to stuff their ears and they survived the sirens. He heard them. I think that was a journey I'm talking about, and it becomes the journey of my life, is to listen, to hear, to respond in the deepest way I can. Speaking of your time at NYU's film school, you did enroll there for your undergrad degree in the fall of 1969, and one of your professors was the legendary Martin Scorsese. What was he like as a teacher, and did any of his lessons stick with you going forward? Yes, he was a wonderfully energetic teacher. He was very young at that time. He hadn't been really discovered. He was just making one of his first features, Who's That, Knocking at My Door. Very inspiring, loved films, and he shared that with a class. His energy level was always very high. One of the highlights for me would be a year in. I made a short film. It was one of my first efforts. It was called Last Year in Vietnam, and showed it to the class, and the class would be very critical in general of each other's projects and he spared me all that he saw the film and he said now here's a filmmaker he's doing it out of his heart he's doing it with passion it's personal and you guys just keep it personal and to some degree I think that really is the issue and I in some degree followed that directive not always successfully and that was my diploma so to speak I felt much more confident after that film You wrote the script for Born on the Fourth of July about a decade before you ended up putting it on screen. Was it difficult to go through Ron Kovic's story with Ron while writing that script? And how did that experience influence you going forward? I was, after I wrote Platoon, and it didn't get made, I was commissioned by Marty Bregman, who was Al Pacino's partner, to write Born on the Fourth of July from Ron Kovic's book about the war. And his experience was as powerful a book as I've ever read about the man who was transformed. He became paraplegic, shot in the spine. And his story is one of hurt and anger and damage and all the issues that veterans go through after a war. So it was a chance for me to do the 1950s and then the war. And then growing up in Mazapequa, Long Island, as a, let's say, average American experience. His father was an A&P grocery clerk. Mother was a Polish housewife very Catholic, and brothers, sisters, he had the whole nine yards he went through. And when he comes back from the war, he goes into the 70s, and it's painful, some of the stuff he has to do to find his way back into the world. And It was a real challenge, because it's 30 years of American life, and I uh, attacked it, and Ron was very helpful, and was my co-writer. But in taking me through the experience, I learned a lot about other veterans. And he put me in touch with the veterans in Los Angeles, a whole group. So I'd been isolated from them in New York. In other words, Ron helped me reintegrate into the world of recognizing the other issues of Vietnam. But it took 10 years to make the movie also, like in Platoon. It was ironic that Platoon got made in 86 and born in 89, you know, 10 years each to be born. Well, it's interesting to read that Al Pacino was originally cast in that role that Tom Cruise ended up playing so many years later. And even though he was a little bit on the older side, you said he did a great job of playing that role in the moment for those three weeks or so. 
that was a great learning experience for me also because I was with the director. I was sat through the rehearsals and he did the theatrical productions. I mean, a lot of rehearsal and, and Al, watching Al rehearse was a joy and powerful experience because he's an amazing actor. As you say, he wasn't exactly right for the role because he was already 38 and Ron was 21. But it certainly, I learned a lot. And when I got the chance to do it 10 years later, I was lucky to get an actor like Tom Cruise because he had not only charisma, but he had the backing of the studio because that project had always been problematic, you understand. Even with Pacino, they had turned it down. It required foreign financing. With Cruise, it got made finally by Universal Pictures. Speaking of Cruise, I was surprised to learn that he was interested in starring what ultimately became Wall Street before you had even written the script, but he was already committed to making Rain Man. Do you think Wall Street would have been better with Cruise in place of Charlie Sheen? Who knows? You know, there's a question that you can always ask yourself, but certainly Tom was that kind of character. Very hard-driving, hungry, and I could see him taking the path of corruption that Charlie took in the movie. And I, it both would be very good choices. Yeah, no doubt about that. Now, Oliver, you describe these long stretches of numbness in your life, like understandably after fighting in Vietnam, and maybe a little bit more surprising to folks, following the success of Midnight Express, which landed you a Golden Globe and Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. Why were you so unhappy in the three years following Midnight Express, considering that you were such a wanted man in Hollywood and also married a Texas gal during that time? Well, it was a little bit more complicated than that. I was doing cocaine. It was not my best time. I started to do cocaine after I did The Hand, or actually during and after, because The Hand was my first chance to write and direct. And it came out in 1981 with Michael Caine, and I think he did a great job. It's actually not a bad movie. You can see it, and I think you'll be very impressed with some of the dialogue. The problem was that it was a thriller, and I should have made it as a thriller, but the pressure was on me to make it into a horror film. Sometimes you can't fall in between, but I really like the thriller aspect of it. In fact, I still enjoy watching it today. Kane is marvelous to look at, but I was shamed by the system. I wasn't in complete control of the film. You have to understand, it takes time for a director to get control of the film. People were assigned to me that I didn't necessarily work well with. Anyway, the film plopped, and I went into a period of withdrawal and shame and very hard to have a fishbowl and to live in a fishbowl and magnify success as well as failure. And hmm. it was a tough period for me. And I felt addicted to a drug I didn't want to be, and it was a very destructive drug. But I did research Scarface on it, so I did learn something from it. <laughs> and then when I wrote Scarface, I actually went cold turkey. So I never was addicted again after uh, 82. I've done it again, but never addicted to it. And that's important. It's an important distinction. Man, there are some great stories from your time of researching, writing, and then being a part of the making of Scarface. For yeah. one, I loved your description of Miami at that time, whose uh, corrupt bureaucracy was such that you described it as a kaleidoscope of mirrors. I thought that was a beautiful metaphor. You also described this crazy scenario where you and your wife Elizabeth end up a little bit fearful for your lives. But ultimately, you get out of that trouble. The script is made. The movie is made. All these years later, why do you think of Scarface as an inside-the-park home run in your life? Well, because it was not received well when it opened. 
for the money it cost, and it went three months over budget, and it was made painstakingly well by Brian De Palma. But it was excessive as a film, very excessive. And it was supposed to be, that was his idea, a grand opera. And it was hated by, let's call them the elite, the white crowd, the film crowd. And the critics, too, were tough. But in New York City, where I was living, I saw it with a black audience and a Hispanic audience, Puerto Rican, too, and let's call them white druggies. <laughs> okay, they got it. <laughs> they got the picture. The picture was very right on to them. It was outspoken. The Al Pacino character, Tony Montana, was respected because he was speaking his mind. He was a, what I would call a free man, very much a, a man who was outside the strictures of society. And you can argue that the drug war, which I saw as completely corrupt by that time, from my own experience in Vietnam and so forth, had corrupted them. You know, the drug war became a money-making vehicle for bureaucracies like the DEA. And it was all blown up out of proportion. It led to, among other things, the huge prison population we have in the U.S. from victimless crimes, you know, drug wars. Many problems. I saw them coming. It was a hypocrisy to the whole damn thing. And I think Tony Montana pointed that out. And I think people appreciated it. No question about that. the street, but I don't think the hoi polloi crowd got it. And over time, the film's reputation grew. That's why I call it Inside the Park, because it did make a lot of money for them eventually. But it didn't do my career any good at that moment, no. You hit a low liner into the outfield, and it kind of rattles around enough. A guy maybe slips <laughs> in the grass, yeah, exactly. and then all of a sudden you I find yourself home. at home, huh? But nobody knew. <laughs> <laughs> the story of your film, Salvador, is wild. Before, during, and yeah. after shooting, you express an array of emotions about everything surrounding that movie in this book. What is your overriding feeling when thinking back on Salvador in 2020 and why? Chaos. Complete chaos. No one should have to go through a situation of uncertainty like we went through every day. We just never had enough money. Nobody in the Americans studio or distribution system wanted to touch it. It was about a revolution with sympathies to the revolutionaries. It was wild in the sense of dialogue, of sex, drugs, color. It was a Hunter Thompson goes to Salvador, <laughs> gonzo journalism. And it's a wacko film. It's out there. I love it. Jimmy Woods got an Oscar nomination for it. Our screenplay was nominated. Same year as Platoon. But it goes to show you, at the bottom of the pit, the madness of that movie was ultimately respected and it found its audience over time. It was about an important subject and it also links to Platoon because I saw when my travels through Central America with Richard Boyle, the journalist was about, that we were doing the same thing down in Honduras and Salvador and Guatemala and above all against the regime in Nicaragua, we were doing the same thing we'd done in Vietnam, which is intervention. And we were coming down on the side of fascists and death squad people. It was disgusting, and it politicized me and made me want to do the movie all the more. But it was chaos from beginning to end. You have to read it to believe it. Yeah, no doubt about that. And after Salvador is released and it seems like a flop is when you get to start making Platoon. And while you're making Platoon, all of a sudden the movie uh, gets almost this second life. As far as Platoon goes, as we talked about a little bit earlier, the Sheen character, Chris Taylor, is based on you and your time fighting in Vietnam. Were there parallels with how Sheen evolved as Chris Taylor during filming and how you were actually changing when fighting in Vietnam? 
in the sense that I hardened and he hardened, yes, and I tried to draw the parallel. But you have to realize Platoon was created on a mythic level. The details of war, it doesn't lend itself to movie making. You know, I was in four different platoons. Three of them were in combat platoons. Characters come, go, soldiers change. You get wounded here. I mean, it doesn't have a pattern quite like I wanted it to have. So I had to find meaning in this war, which could be, you know, war itself is mostly boring, and then something happens, and it's ugly and fast, and sometimes heroic. But what I'm trying to say is it doesn't have any shape. It needs a shape to make a movie, and that's what I gave Platoon with what I told you about this three-people story and coming from my concept of the Iliad. But over the course of that movie, and in my real life, there was a hardening, definitely. I think I reached a place where Chris Taylor gets to in the movie where I darkened. I killed over there, but there was always a line for me where I couldn't cross, but I came awful close as I describe our relations with the village people, the innocent, well, the innocent, let's call them civilians. The civilian populations suffer the most in war, all wars as they do in, even still in Afghanistan and Iraq. But they suffered greatly, and so many of them were killed needlessly. Vietnam was marked by that, this killing of civilians, and also by friendly fire, which I go into, and was one of the reasons why I have the Barnes-Elias confrontation. It's friendly fire killed, I estimate, 20% of our troops. It's the nature of modern warfare, and jungle warfare is even more obscure and difficult. And I don't think the Pentagon ever could deal with that, and certainly movies. And It's like none of these movies deal with realities of war, which is most of them, they want to glorify the American side, but it's not honest. Now, you actually had a near-death experience on the set with Charlie Sheen, Tom Berenger, Keith David, and a couple others after a day of shooting. What happened, and how did you feel in that moment? You know, there was a lot of near-death moments in my life. But certainly the helicopters in the Philippines were not well-maintained. They were very wonderful people, but they just, they were old UEs from the Vietnam days that were sold to them, and they just were not maintained well. And we were flying them around all the time under very difficult wind conditions and valleys and ravines. And one day we almost bought it, more than one day, but that day it was particularly vivid. I described it in the book. Later, a year later, one of those helicopters did go down on the Chuck Norris film, and the whole crew was killed. That could have happened to us. (sighs) Anyway. Platoon's climax, Oliver, is Sheen's Chris Taylor killing Behringer's Sergeant Barnes as payback for Barnes killing Defoe's Sergeant Elias. But you had also written a version where Taylor doesn't pull the trigger on Barnes. Why did you ultimately decide to have Taylor pull that trigger? Because it was the right thing to do. It was ugly and violent, and it was homicide. And it was friendly fire, too, what they call friendly fire. Because, first of all, Barnes had killed Elias under a friendly fire incident under cover of. And Barnes had gone over the line. His career was in jeopardy, and he would have been accused of war crimes. He killed civilians, and Elias knew it. So he killed Elias because his career would have been up in flames, and he killed him surreptitiously. So... The character kills Barnes at the end because it's the right thing to do, but also you realize that Taylor has gone over into the dark side, too, and you can never believe that you go to war and not go over to that side. 
and by the way, I go into a whole explanation of why I feel the American nation darkened itself, coarsened itself in that war. Because whatever we liked it or not, we participated. We condoned it, and we paid its taxes. And I go into that whole morality discussion on the Nuremberg level. It's very important. Unfortunately, a lot of people loved the movie. The movie did very well, but I don't think they learned the moral lesson behind it. Because that- we're all darkened by war. It ruins a country. It ruins a country. Truly, nobody wins no, in the end. No, no. I mean, even the country that supposedly comes out on top, there are serious issues we, that result from that. We lost that war militarily also, but we denied that. And that's part of the problem. Oliver, the thing I think I enjoyed most about your book is that this is a story of your pursuit of a dream, the trials, tribulations, effort, and belief it takes to achieve a dream. You wrote that the most consistently exciting factor that fueled you before you ultimately broke through to the other side with the successes and accolades of Platoon was functioning without much money. Why is that? We had none. (laughs) These pictures of Salvador and Platoon were done outside the system. Nobody would touch them. And I was so frustrated, I, you know, essentially out of the business. But in 85, first of all, I started on my own with oil to start to make it, which is an insane story unto itself. But then John Daly, a British producer, low-budget producer, who was quite a gambler, I dedicated the book to him. He was the funder of both films back-to-back. In fact, one day he turned to me and says, which script do you want to shoot first, Oliver? He said, Salvador or Platoon? <laughs> I've never been asked that question since or before, and it was a dream. And uh, I chose Salvador because I had a suspicion that Platoon would fall apart again if I did that, because it had already fallen apart two times. So John really, as an English outsider independent, made this happen. And we didn't get distribution for Salvador from a U.S. company, but we got it for Platoon finally. And They opened it on more or less a small theater basis, a trial basis, not much money, but it opened and it opened magically. Day one, 12 o'clock show filled with veterans. By the third week, women were coming and it was just a massive hit. It went on for five months. Five months it played. And it played all over the world. It was just a dream. Cinderella, if you want to say the truth. I try to give a sense of that in the book. And, you know, thinking back on it, it was so exciting, but Sure, I'd prefer to have money to shoot a film. It makes it a lot simpler, but there is some excitement. You know what I'm saying? The risk, the danger, the madness. (laughs) Don't want to go through it again, but I certainly appreciate it. Now, (laughs) if I wrote the next 40 years, I would certainly write it about other things, but certainly I can't forget those moments. Well, my fingers are crossed that you do write about the next 40 years. And last question before I let you go, Oliver. You love the 49ers. Didn't realize that until reading this book. You even named your Tony Montana character in Scarface after your favorite quarterback, Joe Montana. Are you confident San Francisco can shake the Super Bowl runner-up curse this season? If so, why? Uh You're funny. Are you a Niner fan? I'm a little bit of an NFL bastard at this point. I was a Houston Oilers fan, and then uh, once Bud Adams ripped them out of my city, I I now pretty much root for individuals. But I do like the 49ers a lot. They were a fun team to watch last year. Yeah, they were. They were the 80s elegance and speed and grace. I loved the Bill Walsh system. He changed football. You know, he was a very special man. I got to know him a bit. Got to know the 49ers a bit. In this new version of them, I'm certainly excited. That was a fun exciting Super Bowl. 
I have my fears, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that the coach is a very smart young man, very smart. But I fear one thing, which is the curse of his father, Shanahan, mm. who I met back in those days when I did any given Sunday. Shanahan was a worried man. He worries all the time. And he shows on his face. And his son has the same problem. I mean, so many times it's not just the game against the Patriots when they lost uh, at Atlanta with that big lead, you know. Uh Shanahan kind of was the offensive coordinator, but he tightened up and the offense couldn't do anything when they were ahead. It seems to me that when you're ahead, you have to take the risks and keep going. And I worry about them because I saw that in the season. They would get ahead and... Often they'd sit on the lead. You don't do that. You can't do that against a team like the Chiefs with the magic quarterback that they have. You've got to keep pressing. And basically that Super Bowl came down to a few moments. It came down to a few bad plays at the end when the Niners had the ball. They couldn't move it. Why? I think it was unimaginative play calling and fear. So I worry that Shanahan, as good as he is, locks down on his fear. I mean, I understand. I mean, you got a chance. You don't want to repeat it. But what happens is you repeat the same mistake, and that's what happened. The Niners could have won that game, could have beaten the Magic quarterback, but they blew it. You think Jimmy G can be the guy? He could be, but he's got to have a coach that lets him relax and take chances and keep pressing when you're ahead is what I'm trying to say, right? <laughs> exactly. Sir, thank you very much. He is Oliver Stone, a multiple Oscar-winning director and screenwriter, and is the author of the book Chasing the Light, Writing, Directing, and Surviving Platoon, Midnight Express, Scarface, Salvador, and the Movie Game. Oliver, thank you so much for the time today, sir, and thank you for this great book. My pleasure.